Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, March 29th, 2017. Can you believe we're almost a quarter of the way through 2017? The word for 2017 is blur. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And we take the time to open up God's Word, to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curricula apparently we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Mm -hmm. And over and again, we demonstrate that what's being taught, what's being said, doesn't square with God's Word at all. And uh, this is a warning and a teaching work that we do here so that you're not deceived and so that you can really know what God's Word really teaches. It's actually far better than what the uh, false teachers would lead you to believe. And uh, as part of our uh, teaching work here, we do a lot of comparing and contrasting. So it's not always the bad stuff. We have to actually throw some good stuff in so that you can see the difference. And uh, every week we do a light episode. It's not that the topic is light. It's that we're focusing in on drilling in on one subject. So we're not changing channels and switching between teachers and things like that. Usually one teacher, one person, good lecture that will really help open your eyes by way of contrast. So uh, let's talk about what we're going to do today. Uh, for, we're going to continue our jaunt through the book of Exodus. I've been, uh, we're up to the part where, uh, well, in the Ten Commandments, it says, you will have no other gods before me. We're going to do a little bit of an excursus. We're going to head into the book of Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to answer the question, what does it mean to have a God? In fact, what does it mean to have this God, our God, the true God, as our God. And we're going to let Isaiah explain that to us by way of contrasting the one true God with the false God. So grab your Bible. Let's get to it. Here we go. Let's pray, and we will get into our text for today. Lord Jesus, again, as we open up your word, we thank you, Lord, that you have revealed to us through your apostle Peter that you are the one shining 
right there in the text of Scripture and that we would do well to pay attention to it. So teach us, Lord, as we walk through these texts what it is that you have revealed, what you would have us believe and do. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. We're still at Mount Sinai, and we're still looking at the first commandment. You will have no other gods. We've been looking at this concept of the first commandment of you shall have no other gods. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what does this exactly mean? And we've, we've done some excursus on some kind of relevant topics as it pertains to difficulties in the church. But I want to do something a little bit more foundational today. And the thing I would like to do is answer the question, what does it mean to actually have a God? What does it mean to have a God? As a Christian, what's so great about having a God? What's so great about having this God? And in order to answer the question, what I would like to do is walk through one of the more famous passages in the prophet Isaiah and his prophecy to us. And in walking through this, we're going to note how God himself reveals to us just how awesome it is to truly have him as our God. And you're going to note there that in contrast, one of the themes that God is going to be talking about is, well, the foolishness, the vanity, the worthlessness, if you would, almost the stupidity of not having the one true God as your God. Idolatry is one of these things that Scripture speaks very strongly against. Now, not in this passage, but in other passages of the Old Testament, God himself shows quite forcefully that he is militantly opposed to false gods and those who worship them. And his favorite way, one of his favorite ways of describing those who are unfaithful to him is he describes idolatry as a way, well, as, well, being a prostitute. It's described as, and I'm not making this up, whoring after other gods. Whoring. W-H-O-R-I-N-G. Those are strong words. But where we pick up in our text today, we're going to drop into uh, part of Isaiah. And it's important that we understand the kind of the context of what is being spoken and what the state of Israel is at this time. And in the opening chapters of Isaiah, Israel at this time is described as people who are religious, but they're religious in a way that's really dangerous. They just go through the motions. So they go and they, every year, they provide the required sacrifices. So you can say they go through the religious motions, but they don't really believe in God. They don't really trust in Him. So outwardly, they they tick off the boxes, but inwardly they're dead. Inwardly they're cold. And as a result of this, I mean, this is, uh, if you would, the religion of Cain. Remember, Cain offered a sacrifice to God, but he had no faith. Same thing is going on, and it's a little bit worse than that. Um, in Isaiah's time, Israel also was engaging in something called syncretism. This is where you kind of hedge your bets. So, yeah, I worship Yahweh, but, you know, to make, you know, 
I also worship Baal, a little bit of Asherah. And uh, if things are going really bad, I haven't ruled Molech out of the equation. And Molech's a terrible deity, by the way, terrible. And so this is what's going on. And God here, you're going to note something in the way God is speaking to his people who are faithless and rebelling against him. What do you think God would do in a situation like that? First and foremost, grab his flaming sword and have Angel Gabriel come and lop off their heads and fill the streets with their carcasses? No. You're going to see the patience and love of God and his restraint. And as we walk through this, you're going to see God comparing himself in very vivid terms to the different idols that people have whether they be false gods or who they trust in, money, or worse, trusting in the government, trusting in their princes and in their kings. We have a tendency to do this in our own country. And it's really nice right now because politics are so screwed up in the United States. I don't know anybody in their right mind who would think, don't worry, the U.S. government's going to solve everything. <laughs> we, at least we have that. So with this, let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to work our way through a very large swath of this text. And watch God's words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double double for all of her sins. The first words in this text out of the prophet's mouth are not words of condemnation, not words of turn or burn. Instead, God is showing his heart here for his people, his wayward and sinful people, and he wants to be able to speak words of comfort and to speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And then we get this wonderful prophecy regarding the prophet, I, uh, the prophet John the Baptist. He's the last of the prophets. But you're going to note here that there's a fascinating technique that God uses in this text. And uh, Rianne, you do hair. So, you know, I know nothing about hair. But I remember when I was a kid, I've seen girls braid their hair. Okay, it's always kind of fascinated me. You take the hair and you kind of break it out into three pieces and then one goes over and then, you know, and then it braids up, right? What we're going to see in this prophecy is that braided in to what God is speaking to the people of Israel at the time of Isaiah is a strand that points to the Messiah. A piece of it that points directly to Jesus. And then he kind of switches back and forth between the different strands. All right, So this is kind of a braided prophecy, if you would. So he says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So here we have a prophecy of John the Baptist, as well as mixed into it an eschatological prophecy. This is regarding the end. And you'll notice then 
that one of the things that Scripture talks about, when it talks about sin, it talks about sin in a way that it is a crooked path. It is a jagged road. It is something that needs to be straightened, um, something that is out of kilter, that needs to be leveled and made flat. And so that's the way in which our sin is described. And so when God is saying, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low, the uneven ground shall become level, the rough place is a plain. This is a description then of our own sin and how God's going to smooth this out for us. And so we have the prophecy of John the Baptist. And then listen to this, verse 5. The glory of the Lord. Ah, we, we saw the glory of the Lord in our, ta- in our text today. Did we, not? we got a little peek at it. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And watch this. All flesh shall see it together. This is eschatological. There is a day coming when we will all see the glory of the Lord and and we'll all see it at the same time together. Nobody gets to go first. We're all going to see it together. So this is talking about in the future. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And let me ask you this. If God says it, is it going to happen? Absolutely. And this is going to be one of those pieces in this prophecy as we work through it where God distinguishes himself from false gods. Number one, <clears throat> false gods, I don't know if you've noticed this about them, they are incapable of speaking. Hmm. And one of the things that God's going to challenge the false gods about is their, not only their inability to speak, but their inability to make their own words happen. Whereas when God speaks a thing, he's able to literally kind of hover over his word to make it so that it happens the way he says. Right? And he could do so centuries and even millennia ahead of time. So a voice says, cry. And I said, this is Isaiah speaking, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now, in this room, we have some who are young. In this room, we have some that are not so young. In this room, we have some that have been around since the time of Noah. I will not point out anyone in particular. But those of us who've been on the planet a few more years, we sit there and go, hmm, my glory is fading quickly. You know, I am not svelte like I used to be. (laughs) None of that. And this is the way of men. And the thing is, is that as we get older, we get tired. We get worn out. And this, this is something that we not only see when we look in the mirror and go, ha! We see this in our inability to do the things that we used to do when we were young. And so all of this is pointing to the fact that, well, we're not, we cannot put our trust in our youth at all. So notice the contrast. This is where God begins this little contrast game. All of you people, oh, your glory fades like the grass. And boy, does it happen quick. That, oh, but the word of the Lord, that's going to stand forever. It never seems to go away, does it? Of course it doesn't. Go up, verse 9, to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. 
Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense is before Him. Now watch the contrast. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So here we have God depicted as mighty, as powerful. And what do you do with might and power? You know what He does with it? He gently cares for His sheep. And even the weakest. It's an interesting picture. Now, there's a story told about me when I was a tyke, you know, a toddler. And I don't remember it. I have no memory of it. But the story goes something like this. My grandparents were coming from uh, New York to visit me in Los Angeles and spend some time with my parents because they wanted some grandparent time. I was the grandchild. So I was a toddler, and my grandparents, they flew from JFK to LAX, and I went with my dad to pick them up from the airport. And while we were waiting for them to get off the airplane, you can go up to the gate at that point, we were inside of LAX, and Wilt Chamberlain was there in the, in the airport. And I'm, you know, like this tall, right? And Wilt Chamberlain walks by, and I go, Dad, look, a giant! And Wilt Chamberlain heard me say that, and I was a little, I was a little shaken by him, and he asked if it would be okay if he picked me up. And I trepidatiously said, "Uh uh-huh. And Wilt Chamberlain picked me up, and he showed me around, and he said, how's it look from up here? (laughs) And that's the story, right? And, of course, I have no memory of it, and this is before they had smartphones, because if they had smartphones, there'd be photos of it, and, you know, it would have, you know, made the, you know, been big on social media. But that's the story. So I want you to kind of think of it this way. This is a similar picture. Here God is describing himself as mighty, muscular, having arms and biceps and strength and all this kind of stuff. And what is he going to do? He's this gentle giant who's going to gather up his sheep, hold them in his arm. And those who are weakest and those who have young, he's going to tenderly care for them. Amazing picture, isn't it? And so this kind of begins to get at the question of, well, what does it mean to have a God? What does it mean to have this God? You see, this God isn't like the other gods, the false gods. Number one, he exists. But if you think of kind of how the transactions work when it comes to idolatry, you go and you have a problem in your life and you seek the face of the deity. And the deity says, can't help you until you do your part. So what do you do? You offer a sacrifice, kill one of your children. You, know, you, you do something, right? In order to earn that God's favor and to earn His blessing. That's how the transaction works. This God is not talking in these terms. He's literally like a husband going after a wayward wife. To get her to turn so that she once again can be the object of his affection and return that affection in return. You see what I'm saying? Totally different perspective altogether. So he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, this big, mighty, muscular God. He will carry them in his bosom, gently lead those who are with young. Huh, interesting contrast. And then God starts to make a note about, well, 
the creation itself. And he's making a point. He asks the question, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Interesting picture, isn't it? And so God is having us picture him as so powerful and so large that the things that are ginormous to us, mountains, lakes, and continents, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I, I had them right here. You know, We measured them. Boy, they came up kind of not very heavy, you know, right? And so this is the picture that God is painting of himself. Consider this about God, all right? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord and... Or what man has shown him counsel? So in contrast, okay, so here's the God who's measured the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth, weighed the mountains. And he asks the question, well, contrarily, who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? <laughs> you put your trust in your own reason and your own abilities. And this has kind of an echo, if you would, of what we hear God say to Job. Remember what God says to Job when God finally speaks? Let me see if I can pull that up really quick. I think we're in Job 38. So if you know the story of Job, Job was made to suffer. Job 38. Job was made to suffer because of his great love of the Lord. And how God has blessed him, and the devil didn't want anything to do with that. Thought that the devil, that Job would curse God if he were put through major suffering. And along the way, Job is comforted by his comforters with really bad theology. And Job has some questions that he is, wants to ask God as to why he's made to suffer. And God finally speaks, and the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. I would think the the Hebrew there is probably closer to the concept of one of those big thunderstorms that rolls through, you know, supercell coming through. So God's speaking to Job out of that. And God says to him, Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. And so you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the seas with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. You could just see Job kind of all puckered up. It'd be best if I not answer any of these questions. And so this is, this is kind of our cross-reference to what we're seeing here. Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand? God is revealing something about himself. Something. And in contrast, he's contrasting his wisdom, his power, and his might 
with human vanity and human belief that somehow we know better than God. Yet God asks the question, whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? No human being has taught this to God. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. The God who measured all of these things before he put them in knows the exact distance of the universe itself and literally caused it to spread out to those points. Snap the measuring line before he laid the foundations of the earth. This God says of the nations, yeah, they're nothing. Yeah, you think Lebanon is something? You think the United States is something? You think Russia has got God all worried? God says of the nations, they're like dust on the scale. Hang on, let me get that out. All right, yeah, there, now it's gone. This is how he talks. And so who are you going to put your trust in? The nations, princes, kings? Who are you going to believe in? So you notice he's dealing with different types of idolatry here. Verse 18, to whom will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him with? An idol? Well, a, cast, a craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. How on earth can you compare Yahweh to an idol? The idol can't move. The idol can't speak. The idol can't think. The idol can't do anything. And God is showing that He thinks. He does. He moves. He acts. And His very name, Yahweh, means that he is. So you would exchange the God who is for an idol that can't do anything? You see the concept? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told from, to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. So much for the flat earth, by the way, here. Yeah. God here says the earth is a what? Circle. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain, who spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Not only do the idols not do anything, but God like does everything. He sits above the circle of the earth and he sees us. You ever been on an airplane and you just love looking down and seeing all the tiny little cars and stuff like that? Yeah, that's God's perspective over us. And he's the one who brings princes to nothing. And we can add to the list presidents and parliamentarians and congressmen and senators and name the person, right? He brings them to nothing. Nothing. 
makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when God blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. See the comparisons? They're wonderful. So to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Now he's pointing to the stars. And in the ancient world, in the time of Isaiah, just like today, people look at the stars and what do they think? Oh, the stars have determined my fate. I was born under the sign of a crab. And therefore, that means I'm cranky. I don't know what that means. You know, I'm just saying, right, you know. I was born under the sign of the bull, which means I'm stubborn and I don't know nothing. And my wife says, amen, amen. (laughs) And so what are they thinking? That the stars somehow are determining our fate and future. God says, lift up your eyes and see who created these, pointing to the stars. He who brings out their host. And host here, savah, means army. Who brings out their army by number, calling them all by name. In other words, you see those stars? Yeah, listen, listen. Let's talk about the one who created them. He has them all named like little pet animals. Yeah, this one I named this one, this one I named that, and this is how God talks about these things. Wait a minute. You can send in money and you can have a star named for you. Yeah, God already has names for these stars. I don't know what they're named. Yeah, you you get in the International Star Registry. I would love that. You know, sometime in the late future, you know, in the year 2766, you know, some poor explorers are now in orbit around Starbase Roseboro. Hated that guy. Yeah. It's the armpit of the universe. Anyway. (laughs) All right. We are going to pause right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's look at Isaiah. As it relates to what does it mean to have a God? In fact, what does it mean to have this God as our God? Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Hey, you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst, holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm, you're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? 
You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy! These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no! And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power responding, Chester. You have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies and they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Uh. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. There's a dangerous movement in evangelicalism known as the New Apostolic Reformation, and they literally claim that in, well, in the past few decades, God has restored apostles and prophets to the church. Chris Rosebro talking about his presentation at this summer's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. In my presentation, I'll be making the case against modern-day apostles and prophets. As part of the presentation, we'll be talking about who's teaching this ecclesiology, the inherent dangers of it, but also what's at the root of it, and that is a false understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You can meet and hear Chris Rosebro making the case against modern-day prophets and apostles, Friday, June 9th, and Saturday, June 10th, at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never works his way meaningfully through any biblical text. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring 
Fighting for the Faith 2 into the world, and you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. After that, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Quick reminder... Uh, conferences are filling up. That's right. All right. We have two conferences that we're holding this year, one in Australia and one in uh, the United States here at uh, in Oslo, Minnesota, not too far from Grand Forks here. All the details are on our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Conference links are up at the very top of the page. Click on that. Select your conference. All the information for dates. How to get here, where to stay, you know, all that is is available. And again, you know, space is limited, so you want to register early. All right. Let's continue now with the balance of today's lecture as we look at, uh, the, well, the prophet Isaiah and ask the question, what does it mean to have a God? What does it mean to have this God? The one true God is our God. Here we go. So God says, he who brings out the... Savah by number, the army by number. Have you ever heard the phrase regarding God, the title, Yahweh Savaoth? Yeah, yeah, some of you have. Yahweh Savaoth, the God of armies. So when you hear the term, the God of hosts, Savah is army. He who brings out the army by number calls them by name, by the greatness of his, his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And this is a very polite way of saying, yeah, listen, they don't have any, they don't exert any authority over you whatsoever. Let's talk about the one who has named them all and knows that not a single one is missing. Anyone want to count these all up? It's beginning to sound a lot like there's some some practical benefit to having a God, at least the one who is. So why do you say, O Jacob, Speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from Yahweh, and my right is is disregarded by my God. Is there any place that you can go where God isn't? Is there any place that you can hide where he cannot see you? Does God play hide and seek with you? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. Huh. We all do that, even the youngest among us. His understanding is unsearchable. And listen to this. This God, He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, He increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall be exhausted. But they who wait on Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk, not faint. God is literally promising here. For those who trust in the Lord, 
all of that strength and might and power that He has infinitely. He says, I'm going to give you My strength and I'm going to renew yours. Why don't we hear that on TV? Because God's giving it away for free here and they want money. And so notice, notice here, are you faint? Are you weary? Are you exhausted? Yeah. God says, don't worry. I'm going to give you my strength. I'm going to renew yours. You are going to mount up with wings like eagles. You will run and not be weary. You shall walk and not faint. Do you think that's why a lot of times, like before a person dies, it, it doesn't become like complete? Yeah. Okay, that's a different story altogether. When we talk about near-death experiences, one of the things fascinating, read history. Read history. There's over and over and over and over again through the centuries, account after account after account of people who near death, going up to death, they were not lucid, they were out of their mind, and right before they die, there's a moment of clarity. Fascinating. What you're describing is a universal phenomenon. Um, Shelby Foote, in his uh, series on the Civil War, yes, I'm a, I'm a nerd. Okay, um, he describes the death of Stonewall Jackson. You all familiar with who Stonewall Jackson was? Crazy eccentric Christian fellow um, who would never uh, let his army fight on Sunday because he didn't want to break the Sabbath, and, but he would march them into the ground the next day. And the guy was a, a like, a, I mean, he thought he was invincible. And he fought in such a way that the Union Army just, if they knew they were up against Stonewall Jackson's forces, oh man, they were praying their last prayers and they knew it. But what ended up happening, I think after the Battle of Chancellorsville, I could be wrong on the battle, he was out inspecting his lines and it was dusk. And one of his own men shot him, took his arm off took his arm off, and medical technology wasn't where it was today. They didn't have antibiotics and things like that. And so he went and had his arm removed, and you know he was convalescing. And it looked like things were getting better for him. He was on the mend. And then it took a severe turn. Turns out he had a major infection, got pneumonia. And as he got worse and worse... What would end up happening is, is that when he was not lucid, his brain was fevered. They didn't have a way of bringing the, the fevers down. So when he would go into a fever, um, he, you could tell mentally he would go right into battle. He'd say, bring up AP Hill's forces, get those cannons, you fill that guy. barking out orders like you wouldn't believe. And, uh, and so he would come in and out of lucidity. And when he wasn't lucid, he was in the battlefield in his mind. And you know, so much so he was vocalizing it. And he came out of you know, one of those periods and his wife said to him, um, the doctor says that you must die today. He said, well, what day is it? Sunday. He said, that's a good day to die. Good day to die. And sure enough, like the doctor said, because he was, he was near the end, um, as, as the day went forward, he went again into a major fever and he was in battle. And literally, no joke, as he was barking out orders, he just stopped. He said, no, wait. Let us cross over the river and rest in the shade of the trees. 
And those were his last words when he died. Fascinating stuff. Those who wait on the Lord, they will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will walk. They will run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. This is a promise. And the promise is for the faint, the exhausted, the weary. That's us. Notice that God doesn't promise these things to the strong because there's none strong among us. 41. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach and then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who is stirred up, one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. This is talking about how God raises up kings and people to judge other nations. And in this case, kind of like something like Nebuchadnezzar to judge Israel. He pursues them, passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. Good, Better translation of the Hebrew, I am. And what's fascinating, just do the comparative work here. This is exactly how Jesus talks. This is how He talks about Himself. This is literally how He argues in the Sermon on the Mount. Why do you worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear? Do not the Gentiles seek after these things? Consider the lilies of the field. Solomon in all of his splendor was never clothed like any of these. Yet, they are like the grass. They're here today and tomorrow they're put into the fire. Are you of not more value than they are? Or consider the sparrows. They neither sow nor reap, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they, O you of little faith? The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. And here comes that part of the braid. It's messianic, woven right into the middle of this. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and will not cast you off. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you, they shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, 
Yahweh, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Wow, what a promise. And this applies to us today. We hear the Lord speaking this to Israel. Fear not, I am with you. Don't worry about those who contend against you. And Jesus, in a similar way, promises us that because they persecuted Him, we will be persecuted. But don't fear them. The God who created everything, who's named all of the stars, the One who measured the oceans in the hollows of His hand, He is with you. Fear not. Those who contend against you, there is a day coming when you will look for them and you will never be able to find them. There is nothing to Him. What does it mean to have a God? What does it mean to have this God as your God? It means everything. Now watch the contrast in this next part. Verse 14. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. Notice God is literally saying of Israel, you're a worm. Now, have any of you ever seen that amazing book about the history of the great exploit of worms? It'd be a short book. All of it's maybe a pamphlet. Come to think of it, they haven't really done much. Okay, worms are not known for their mighty strength and their great exploits. But watch what God says to this worm. I am the one who helps you, you worm, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make of you a a threshing sledge. Now, what's a threshing sledge? Sounds like a farm implement, but you know, think of it like something that tears up the soil, right? So I go from being a worm to being a threshing sledge. How about a John Deere? Watch what we do. New, sharp, having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them and the wind shall carry them away and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in Yahweh in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. What a picture. We go from being worms to being threshing sledges. Not being able to do anything to literally tearing up mountains and turning them into chaff. Now granted, this is poetic talk. But this Hints at, hints at what it's going to be like to be alive in the new earth with strength that never fades. Because it's not ours, it's given to us by God. The ability to do things that no worm can do because we've been transformed by God Himself, the Holy One of Israel. When the poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, Yahweh, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Have you noticed here God's complete obsession with those who are weak, thirsty, needy, broken, exhausted? You do realize that before you realize you need this God, that's where you need to get. And the reality is all of us are already there. 
It's just that so many of us play the denial game. I'm fine. It's a mere flesh wound. Monty Python. Mm -hmm. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. This is Exodus talk. Did he not do this? Just a few weeks ago when we read it in Exodus? Split rock of Horeb. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. So set forth your case, says the Lord. Now God goes to court. God has put on His judge robes and also take them off to play attorney too. So set forth your case, says Yahweh. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, so that we may consider them. Notice what God's challenging here. You don't have any memory of the former things, do you? You weren't even here. And while you're at it, since you're going to tell us about the former things, why don't you tell us about what's going to happen next? if you can predict the future. Tell us the form of things, what they are that we may consider them and that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things that are to come. Tell us what's to come hereafter so that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm. Do something. Oh, I forgot. You can't do anything. So that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing. Your work is less than Nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. So you'll notice God doesn't play nice with false gods. He actually mocks them. He taunts them. Come on, do something. This is Elijah on Mount Carmel. Elijah on Mount Carmel. There's the prophets of Baal. They got to go first. It's a awful sporting of him. You guys go ahead and go first. So there they are, the God who answers from heaven. He's the true God. So you call on Baal. I'm going to call on Yahweh. You go first. And there they are. They've made their sacrifice ready. Oh, Baal, listen to us. But there was nothing. There was no answer at all. And so what does Elijah do? The text says he mocked them. Cry louder. He is a God, isn't he? Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he needs to be awoken. Maybe he's taking a dump. That's what the text says, and I cleaned it up. Okay, it actually says that. In the ESV, it says, maybe he's relieving himself. Really, the Hebrew's way more graphic than that. Okay. He's in the little room. You go, can you do, can you talk like that? Well, God does. <laughs> Don't you want to be godly? <laughs> Okay. And then God says, verse 24 again, Behold, you false gods, you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing, and an abomination is he who chooses you. You see, when kind of spelled out this way, idolatry seems kind of like a really foolish choice. 
I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one among them. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. The person who worships such a thing is delusional. The Lord has spoken this. All paths lead to Yahweh? I don't think so. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is preaching about Jesus. And again, notice Yahweh's obsession with the poor, the needy, the exhausted, the broken, the weak. And it says of Christ, a bruised reed he will not break. So you come to Jesus and you are broken from the inside out and a bruised reed is worthless. Not good for anything. And Jesus doesn't say, just snap it off already. No, that's not what He says. What good is a candle that it's burnt down to the bottom and it's just kind of a smoldering little wick? What good is that? When Jesus sees that, what does he do? Hang on, let me lick my fingers. Now, that solved the problem. No! You see, you're the bruised reed. I'm the bruised reed. You're the faintly burning wick. And Jesus doesn't say, worthless, send it away. Oh, we got to fix this. I'm not going to blow this candle out. I'm going to protect it. Find a way to fan it back into flame. It can't do it by itself. It can't do it at all. This is describing the heart of God. Again, I ask the question, what good is it to have a God? What good is it to have this God? When you listen to what He says about Himself and how practical He is on His own terms, have this God is to have everything. To not have Him is to have nothing. Actually, it's to have less than nothing. You will have no other gods before me. This is the God who cares for the weak, the despised, the lowly, the broken, the smoldering. He doesn't despise them. He cares for them and He loves them and He will carry them in His arms his strong and mighty arms. This is the God who is. This is our God.
We'll pick this up next week. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.